welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one binding page of Talmud every day. And in today's pages, Sukkah 32 and 33, we get a taste of, well, what it means to be bound together. Have a listen. On a related note, the Gemara asks, Who is the Tana who taught in the Bridah? There is a mitzvah to bind the myrtle and the willow with a lulav. And if he did not bind it, it is fit? Whose opinion is it? If the Baraita is in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, when he did not bind it, why is it fit? If it is in accordance with the opinion of the rabbis, what mitzvah did he perform? The Gemara answers, actually, it is in accordance with the opinion of the rabbis. And the reason that there is a mitzvah to bind them, to bind the myrtle and the willow and the lulav, as we still do every sukkah, is as follows. The reason there is a mitzvah to bind them is due to the fact that it is stated, this is my God and I will glorify him, which they interpreted to mean beautify yourself before him in the performance of the mitzvot. The rabbis agree that although failure to bind the three species does not render the lulav unfit for the mitzvah, the performance of the mitzvah is more beautiful when the lulav is bound. Now, everyone who's observed Sukkot, even casually, knows this wonderful moment of taking the lulav, of putting the myrtle on one side, the willow on the other, holding them all together as one unit, holding them in one hand, the etrog in the other, and, and creating this binding moment. And today's page asks, well, why do we do that? And if we don't do it for whatever reason, we just hold them separately. Is it still valid? It's one of these aesthetic, spiritual, mystical mysteries that the Talmud foists upon us ever so often. And when it does, one man, and only one man, could answer them. He is my friend and my teacher and yours, Rabbi David Bashevkin. Welcome back to the show. Liel, what an absolute joy to be speaking about the binding of the lulav. And I just have so many wonderful childhood memories about it's like a sweater. Like sometimes I would like pull at the binding and before I knew it by the end of Sukkot, it would just be an absolute mess. And I also want to give a brief shout out to the way that they used to bind the esrog, the packaging of the esrog, which used to be this like hairy flax-like. Absolutely. I don't know if you ever, do you remember growing up with that? Oh, now it's like. a thousand percent. Now it's it's all like high tech kind of. It's went corporate. Really S-Rogue went corporate on me and I miss the hairy flax that they used to bind it with. But listen, this is a great mystery because every circus, I'll be very honest, you know, I get a little bit anxious that I'm doing this binding stuff wrong. You know, where does a myrtle go? Where does a willow go? The lulav, the arava. Tell us why why the binding? So it's so interesting for why this is like characteristic of the beauty of bringing the lulav and esrog, of having it bound. Like there are so many other ways that I could think of beautifying it. And we don't even bind it in such fancy binding. We don't insist that it's silver or gold. It's kind of bound in the very fabric and material of the lulav itself. And when I think of the importance of this binding and why this plays such a prominent role in this ritual of bringing the lulav bound with the myrtle and the hadassim, all of which are together, I think a lot of sukkahs is understood in the aftermath of Yom Kippur. In the sense that Yom Kippur is a time and the high holidays are a time where we focus on our personal development and we focus on each individual taking stock 
of their lives, and we try to find purity within our own self and within our own religious lives. And what we do just a few short days after in entering in Sukkot, in the same way that Sukkot, the tractate of Talmud that we're studying, follows the tractate of Yuma, is that we now look to find God not just in that solemn individualistic experience that we have on Yom Kippur, but we try to now find God in others and within the Jewish people. And that's why I think the binding is so central, because the Midrash tells us that each of the species that we bring, the Lulav, the Esrog, the Hadas, and the Arava, each represent a different type of Jew. Each represent a different segment of the Jewish people. And when you want to find real beauty, when you want to find real loftiness, you need to bring all of the different flavors of the Jewish people together in one place. The imagery that I always like that is said in the introduction of the Arach HaShulchan, which was a 19th century work of halacha, is that the beauty of Torah, the beauty of religious life, specifically comes out when we embrace the harmonies and the melodies of the cacophony and the diversity of voices within the Jewish people. When we're just alone on Yom Kippur and we have that solemn, solitary experience, it's awe-inspiring, it's moving, and it's transformative. But if you want beauty, you need harmony and you need melody. And in order to have harmony and melody, in order to see the majesty of song, you need different instruments, you need different voices, and you need different people. And what we begin to do on Sukkot is we step outside of the central synagogue and we begin to see God in the world and in people. And the way that we're able to do that is represented in these four species, each representing that different segment of the Jewish people. And when we bind them together, it represents what beauty is all about. Beauty is not about homogeneity. Beauty is about diversity and about finding a way that all of the different segments of our people, of our history, and of our community can coexist inform one another, and instead of becoming angry and fighting and difficulty, it becomes a harmony and a melody of the great Jewish narrative of the song of the Jewish people. I love the notion of of the different sections of the Jewish people being bound together, but say a little bit more. It, it seems like you have a really good idea of who these four distinct uh, groups might be. Who are they? So the way the Medrash sets it up, it's that the Esrog has both a beautiful taste and a beautiful smell. You could smell it. It tastes good. This is something that both the inside, when you bite into it, and the way it affects its surrounding is both beautiful. And that, in the eyes of the Medrash, represent almost like that perfect righteous Jew who's doing everything right and uplifting everybody around them. As opposed to the Lulav, who doesn't really have quite a a smell, right? It has a taste, but there's no real smell that wafts from the Lulav. And in a sense, the Medris looks at the Lulav as that scholar, that ivory tower, that insular world of the Beit Midrash, of the yeshiva, 
It doesn't necessarily affect all of the surroundings because there's an element of seclusion, but it also uplifts that if you enter and you bite into it, it does have a very pleasing taste. The third is the hadas. The hadas does not really have such a sweet taste. It doesn't taste like much, but if you actually hold a lot of hadasim together, it has a beautiful aroma. It uplifts. And this is kind of that simple Jew who isn't all that scholarly, but is a lover of Jewish community, is involved, isn't a major scholar, isn't contributing original ideas, but is really uplifting the community because the smell wafts out. People like to be around it. When you bite into it, there's not much there, but it uplifts the entire surrounding. And finally, there's the arava. The arava doesn't taste like much, and it doesn't smell like much. And in a way, this is the Jew who is not really involved in scholarship and not really that involved in the community. I don't want to use words like the assimilated Jew or the Jew who's not involved, but I think everybody in their own life has had moments where Judaism doesn't taste like much and doesn't smell like much. It's just kind of bland. And I think the Arava represents Jews who Judaism for them doesn't spark that deliciousness and that flavor. And I think that what binding all of these people together and what they represent together is saying the scholar and the communal leader and the communal participant and the person even on the outskirts of the community are all voices, are all harmonies and melodies in this grand Jewish song that we have been perpetuating for millennia and that is represented when we step into this unbelievable holiday of Sukkot. Could not be a holiday unless we all enter this proverbial sukkah together. Rabbi David Bashevin, thank you so much for being our guest. My absolute pleasure. This has been Take One, a production of Tablet Studios. If you enjoy this show, and I hope you do, please go and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Each week, we'll be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Dafyomi. I'm your host, Leah Leibowitz, and our producers are Josh Cross, Sarah Fredman-Ader, and Robert Scarmuccia. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. You could find us on Twitter at Take One Dafyomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope we've made your day a little bit more Talmudic and we'll see you again soon.